And as you are, I would invite you to turn in your copy of Scripture to Luke chapter 24 this morning. I don't know if you know this, but the hymn we just sang is based on the words of the two on the road to Emmaus to Jesus when they say to him, abide with us. Um, And they are longing for him to stay with them. Um, And so whenever we sing that hymn, it ought to in some way bring us to this chapter and to this really beautiful portion of scripture. We're going to look this morning at Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13, and we're going to read down to verse 35, and I know you're going to find it helpful to have uh, this in front of you and to be reading along with me silently as we look at this together. And before we do come to the preaching of God's word, let me just briefly pray for us again. Father in heaven, again, we ask that you would send your word out in triumph. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would know your presence with us, that you would truly abide with us as your word is preached, that you would open our eyes to see the glory of God in your face. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would leave this place changed by the preaching of the word. We pray that you would receive glory and honor and that we would be satisfied in you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Luke 24, beginning in verse 13. And this is sometime on the day of Jesus' resurrection. And uh, he has already appeared to the women who have gone and told the disciples that he's risen. They have then gone and seen for themselves. And now Luke, and only Luke, gives us this account of Jesus' converse with these two on the road to Emmaus. And um, Luke now writes this, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other As you walk. And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how Our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, 
for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I mentioned this morning in our Sunday school session that I grew up in a very strong Christian home, and the scriptures were very prevalent in our home, and yet as a boy growing up, I I really abhorred reading the Bible. Uh, Reading the Bible was one of the most arduous things I could possibly conceive of doing, and and when I read the Bible, many times it, it was like a shut book to me. Um, when I was converted at 24, um, I'll, I'll never forget, as the Bible was now this glorious book that I couldn't read enough, I was sitting on a couch in the living room in the apartment I was living in, and, and I was reading the account of the treasure in the field, the parable of the treasure in the field, and it was as if the Holy Spirit flooded me, and I remember thinking, Jesus is the treasure, and he's been there the whole time, and I couldn't see him. I could not believe that he had been right in front of me my entire life, and I could not see him. And now I saw him with spiritual illumination. Now, I tell you that because really here in Luke chapter 24, in this one of the first resurrection appearances of Jesus, and between that 40-day period between his resurrection and his ascension, uh, what, we are, what we are looking at is several disciples of Jesus who have not yet been brought to a place of being able to see with spiritual eyes who Christ is. They, they, they know the truth. We'll see that. They can confess what has been called an, an, a partial creed. They, they, know, they know many of the truths that are necessary to be known for salvation, but they have not yet experienced the inner illuminating work of the Spirit to enable them to see Jesus. And and this passage is so important because this passage comes to us and it, it presses on us that question, and we'll see that throughout. Have I come to see who Jesus really is? Have I had my eyes open? Have I been able to have my heart lit on fire by the truth of the Scriptures about Christ? And have I been made to see what is the most central thing in the Christian faith and the thing that I need most, which is the message of the gospel. Um, This chapter, just by way of preface, is full of beautiful language. Um, Malcolm Muggeridge once said it's one of the most glorious works of literary writing. Uh, Statements like, did not our hearts burn within us? These beautiful statements. And yet, and yet, it's not just a work of literature. This is the very revelation of God to us. And I want us to consider this morning three things. 
because that's what Baptist and Presbyterians do. We give you three points, and I, this morning, want us to consider first the need for spiritual illumination, secondly, the means of spiritual illumination, and then finally, the message of spiritual illumination, the need, the means, and the message. Uh, Phil Riken has made the very significant point that in between this seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus, these two disciples are, are on the road in between faith and unbelief. Isn't that interesting? They're, they're leaving the place where Jesus has just accomplished everything that the, the Old Testament prophets has, have foretold, everything that God had predicted, and, and he's fulfilled it, and they, they are related. If this is the same Cleopas... And he is, he is the husband of one of the Marys, who was one of the women in the, the close group of those women that were with the Lord Jesus and supported him. Now, we don't know. Many people have wrongly assumed that these are two men walking. Uh, this could be a couple. This could be Cleopas and his wife. This could be Cleopas and his son. We don't know. But they are, they are in the outer edge of the disciples, Um, And as they are walking, they are sad. Now, when we consider the resurrection of Jesus, being downcast is the last thing we should expect in our hearts and minds. You You see how far they are from understanding what has happened. They should be exuberant. They should be rejoicing. They're what will happen at the end of this when Jesus brings them through these stages and then gives them that illumination, they should already have felt that. And yet they're despondent, they're discouraged, they're downcast, they're, they're talking sort of nervously to one another. We, we were following this one. You can imagine them saying to one another, we, 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 we thought this was really the Messiah, that we, we thought he was the Christ. They're, they're vacillating between faith and unbelief. And very interesting, this is a picture, by the way, of how Jesus deals gently, even with those who are on the same road between faith and unbelief. He doesn't, he doesn't deal harshly with them. He doesn't, he doesn't deal excessively sternly with them. In fact, he comes alongside them, and, and we don't know why, but he's hidden from them. Now, that might have been... Uh, due to his post-resurrection body, because we know that Jesus had the same body, has the same body now that he had before the crucifixion, but it's glorified and he could walk through walls. Don't ask me how to explain that, but he could do that. And so maybe Jesus has hidden himself supernaturally. Maybe God has just merely kept these disciples from seeing who he is, but they do not recognize him. And, and their physical failure to recognize him is important because it is a parable of their spiritual inability to recognize him. The, the, the physical arrangements are, are setting for us the conundrum that these two need inner illumination. Um, now, Jesus doesn't begin to teach them. He, he asks them a question. Um, Sinclair Ferguson has helpfully said, you know, we are often so eager to share the gospel with people that we don't listen to them. Here, Jesus is teaching us a lesson. He says, he knows what they're talking about, and he, but he says, what, what, 
was this conversation that you were having as you walked. And you see, Jesus is trying to draw out of them, and this is so important. Jesus is always wanting to draw out of us, out of you and me, and out of all people, what is in their hearts. Jesus is wanting to help people understand who they are and where they are. We'll never, we'll never see our need for Jesus if we don't understand where we are. And, and so by asking that question, he is drawing out of them essentially the great problem. Here, they, they know that unfinished creed. They can, they, can, they can essentially recite the Apostles' Creed. And yet they don't believe that he's risen. They can go through every part of his life, his death, all the way up to the empty tomb. And they can give all the facts, and they do give all the facts, and yet they do not believe that he's really risen. They don't believe the testimony of the women. They don't believe the testimony of the disciples who went and saw for themselves. And more importantly than that, which we'll see shortly, is they do not believe the testimony of Scripture or the teaching of Jesus himself, that he must suffer, that he must rise, and that the gospel would then be preached to the nations. You know, there is a um, historical illustration of this conundrum that, that a man or a woman, a boy or a girl could know so much truth and not see Jesus with the eyes of faith. Uh, John Wesley, you know well, was in Georgia in the 18th century. And when he first came to Georgia, you may not know this, he was a minister in the Church of England. And when he came to Georgia, um, he, he was unconverted. He came to do missions, and, and he actually said in the preaching of the gospel, I'm hoping to discover the Christ I'm preaching to others. He met a, a Moravian uh, minister when he came to Georgia, a man named August uh, Spangerberg. And Spangerberg realized that Wesley was not uh, really preaching something that he himself knew and experienced. And so on one occasion, he asked Wesley, does the Spirit of God bear witness with your spirit that you are a child of God? And Wesley, in writing about this, explained that he was surprised and didn't know how to answer. And then after pausing, Wesley said, I know that he is the Savior of the world. I know that he is the Savior of the world. Spannenberg said, true, but do you know he has saved you? Wesley responded, I hope he died to save me. That's not faith. That, that's on the road between faith and unbelief. Spannenberg then said, do you know yourself? To which Wesley said, I do. But he later said, I feared they were vain words. Now, Wesley would be converted, but the point is, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how young you are. It doesn't matter if you're a congregant. It doesn't matter if you're a minister. You can know all these truths and not see Jesus with the eyes of faith. Because unless God gives that inner illumination, all of our reading of God's word will be in vain. Now, lest you think I'm diminishing the place of God's word, very interesting here in Luke, no sooner do these disciples tell Jesus um, their account, their narrative of the things that had happened and what they understood intellectually, notice verse 25, he said to them, O foolish ones, 
which sounds harsh for Jesus. I don't think it is. Theologians differ on how strongly that word should come across. But, but he is rebuking them. Oh, foolish ones, slow in heart to believe all that the scriptures have spoken. Now, this is remarkable. Um, I think I just heard this a few years ago and had never thought about this. But in this resurrection appearance of Jesus, he is bodily in front of the disciples he is revealing himself to. He could easily show them his hands and his side as he did to Thomas, who was doubting. But the risen Jesus points to the scripture to convince these disciples about who he is. That's remarkable. If the risen Jesus felt that it was significant enough to point his disciples to Scripture and to the Old Testament in particular, how much we should be convinced that we need God's Word in all of our life, all of the time. Um, That's the highest view of the Bible you will ever get. The risen Jesus pointed to the Bible in order to point these disciples to himself. Now, that's significance, and it's significant, and, and you'll see in this passage that, that what we sometimes in the Reformed Church call the means of grace are, are being really set out, right? We talk about the means of grace, the word and, and the sacrament and, and prayer, and here Jesus appeals essentially to two of the means of grace, the scriptures, and, and he'll, he'll unpack those in a special way for these disciples, and we'll We'll talk about that in a moment. And then at the end of this, as they stay together, he breaks bread with them. Now, that may not be the Lord's Supper per se. Um, Some have said, well, there's no cup. That can't be the Lord's Supper. It may not be. But the language of him taking the bread and blessing it and breaking it and then their eyes being opened draws our minds back to the supper where he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it. and, and, And these are the means God has appointed You know, I I sometimes think, and this may not be true for you, but that many Christians um, want an easy Christian life that um, in which God just sort of downloads everything into them by osmosis. Um, But that's not how our God works. He's, He's given us the scriptures and he wants us to abide in the word and he wants us to remain in the word and to pour over the word and to hide it in our hearts and to renew our minds with it and, and to sit under it on the Lord's day and to have it reach into every aspect of our lives. Um, we can never overemphasize the importance of Scripture. Now, we can know Scripture and not know Christ, but if we know Christ, we can never overemphasize the importance of God's word in teaching us more about him and more about ourselves, more about the triune God. Um, We can really never overemphasize the Lord's Supper. Um, These are means that God has given us to give us more grace. People often ask me uh, why I liked observing the Lord's Supper with a lot of frequency in the church I planted, 
And, and I would often say, because I need as much grace as I can possibly get. And if it's a means of grace, and if the word is the means of grace, we, we want to avail ourselves to those as frequently as we can. Um, I remember years ago, Al Martin, the Reformed Baptist minister, saying, in my 30 years of pastoral ministry, I've never had an individual come to me and said, Pastor, I haven't read my Bible in months, and I've never been closer to Jesus. <laughs> um, God, God has given us these things to, to build us up in the faith, to build us up in Christ, to, to give us more grace because we are so weak, and we are often on the road between faith and unbelief. Um, well, We've briefly considered the need for spiritual illumination. We've briefly considered the means of spiritual illumination. And now, and most centrally, I want us to consider the message of spiritual illumination. Now, you know this well. It's both here in, in this account and then a little later on when Jesus is with the other disciples. Uh, Luke tells us he opened the scriptures and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, and then later on in Verse, I believe, 44 and following, it says that, that he, he taught his disciples everything about himself out of, out of the law and the Psalms and the prophets. The, those are the divisions of the Old Testament, the, the threefold division, the Torah, the Navim, the Kathuvim, the, the, the law, the wisdom literature, the prophets. And, and Luke is telling us essentially on that seven-mile journey, and wouldn't you have loved to have been on that road with Jesus? What did he point to? I am certain he pointed, I believe, to Genesis 3.15, since that is the backbone of the Bible, that he would be the seed of the woman who came to crush the head of the serpent. Um, Sinclair Ferguson says that um, the rest of the Bible is a footnote to Genesis 3.15. Really helpful. So I, I, I would venture to say that the text doesn't say Jesus almost certainly took them to Genesis 3.15. And then maybe he took them through the covenants and he explained how he was the son of Abraham and the son of David. And maybe he took them uh, to Jonah and the typology of Jonah that he had given his own disciples as Jonah was three days and three nights in the heart of the fish. So the son of man would be three days and three nights in the earth. And, and, and all those types and shadows, Melchizedek and Noah and, and Daniel... And maybe he explained that he was the angel of the Lord in the fire with, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And maybe he explained that he was the, the, the Melech Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, in, in the account appearing to Samson's parents. And, and I like to think he took them to the Psalms and he explained what we know from the apostles about where he is in all of the Psalms. What a... What an amazing experience that must have been. Now, we should all love that. But I have found in my short ministry that there are many men and there are many Christians who get bored with that message, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that followed, that men that begin their ministry saying, I will determine to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified by the end of their ministry have stopped preaching that message. I had a young man preparing for ministry many years ago come to me and tell me why he was leaving 
the church and he beat his breast and he said, I'm sick and tired of hearing about the gospel. He was preparing for ministry. So I am acutely aware that everyone does not respond the way they ought to respond when we hear that the central message of scripture is about the sufferings of Jesus and his resurrection and ascension glory. Um, that's the message. That is the message that is to be proclaimed no matter what, what else is taught in Scripture. Um, this old Princeton theologian, Gerhardus Voss, put it this way. He was preaching to a graduating class at Princeton Seminary at the end of the 19th century, and Voss said, It is possible, it is possible, Sabbath after Sabbath, year after year, for a man to preach things of which none can say that they are untrue, and none can deny that in their proper place and time they may be important. Voss says, and yet to forego telling people plainly and to forego giving them the distinct impression that they need forgiveness and salvation from sin through the cross of Christ. You see, what Jesus is giving us is not just a focus on the importance of the means of grace. He is focusing us on the importance of knowing the central message of all the means of grace. Have you ever thought about this? We'll come to the table here shortly. And of all the things that God could have put before your eyes on the table, he doesn't put the Ten Commandments. Praise God he didn't put the Ten Commandments on the table. Remember, where does he put the Ten Commandments? In the ark. He puts them in the ark, and he puts the mercy seat over them so that the blood can cover our violations of them. What does the Lord give us? He gives us two simple symbols that point to the central message of Scripture. So that if you want to know whether a man is doing his job in following the example of Jesus in preaching Christ from the Scriptures, Voss goes on to say that you have to ask the question, is the purport of the message one and the same with the purport of the table? So that if the two are not giving the same message, there is something horribly wrong. Um, Jesus opens the scriptures to these men. He teaches them all the things in all the scriptures about himself on that seven-mile walk. And notice now verse 28, they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as though he were going further, but they urged him strongly. Now that means there must have been something about Jesus's revelation of himself from the scriptures that compelled these men who do not yet see who he is to beg him to stay with them. You know, these two are really a picture of how God works on all of us. We don't even know what he's doing while he's doing it. Isn't that interesting? They are not aware of what's about to happen to them. Jesus is right there in front of them, but they can't see him, but they know that they need this one who's talking to them. And they are being drawn to him already. And they beg him, abide with us, stay with us. And by the way, this is the eighth meal in Luke's gospel. And if you all know much about the spiritual significance of numbers, the number seven is completion and wholeness on a seven-day week. The eighth day is the first day, and it points to the new creation. This is a new creation meal. This is the first day of the resurrection. This is the most significant meal in Luke's gospel. 
because Jesus is about to reveal himself to the disciples and open their eyes to see who he is for the first time in their life. Think about that. For the first time in their life. And so as they sit down, notice verse 30, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them and their eyes were open. That's one of the most beautiful ways that true conversion is captured in language in the Bible. Remember Lydia in Acts 16, the Lord opened her heart to understand all that Paul had preached to her. The Lord opened their eyes and they understood everything that he had revealed to them for the first time in their life. They are no longer on the road between faith and unbelief. They are on the road to glory. And notice, we know that because they recognize him and he departs from them. Now, what's the point of that? Well, the whole point of Jesus visiting them was to bring them to a place where they could see him spiritually, where they would not need to see him physically. Now, Simon Peter sort of picks up on this in 1 Peter when he says, Whom having not seen, you love. Whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet with joy inexpressible and full of glory, we, we rejoice in him. And that's exactly what happens to these disciples. Notice, now that they've understood the message of scriptures, they, they say to one another in verse 32, they're not even bothered that he's not physically present with them anymore. They're not bothered by that. Notice they say to one another, did not our hearts burn within us as he opened the scriptures? And then they go and they proclaim in faith, the Lord is risen indeed. He has brought them from unbelief to faith. He has brought them from mere intellectual knowledge of the Bible to a true spiritual understanding. Now, um, it may be that this morning you've never had that happen to you. I was in the church a long time before the Lord did that for me. And it is right and good for you to cry out to the Lord to do that if you've never done that, to open the eyes of your hearts to see him. And yet, if he's done that for you, and I know this by experience, our hearts often grow dull, and we need further illumination. Paul actually prays that for the Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, he actually says, after telling them all the spiritual blessings they have in Christ, he says, I'm praying for you that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened. Well, they've already been enlightened, but he's praying for more enlightenment, more of a sight of Christ. Um, we will never see Jesus enough with the eyes of faith in this life. One old Puritan talked about the importance of Christ in all the scriptures by saying, we need the whole Christ, and we get the whole Christ from the whole of the scriptures. So that if I don't get Christ from Amos, and I won't tell you this morning how to do that, but if I don't get Christ from Amos, there's a part of Christ I'm not seeing. We need the whole Christ from the whole of the scriptures, and we need to be able to see him with the eyes of faith. That's the most important thing. Nothing else trumps that. That's it. There's nothing more important in the Christian faith 
If you want to grow in grace, you need a greater sight of Christ. If you ever come to a place like that young man and you say, I'm so sick and tired of hearing the gospel, you're in a very bad place. Because we will need the gospel every day of our life until we're with Christ in glory and we see him as he is. I hope that you'll be encouraged to examine your own hearts, to consider where you are, to make a, a serious and committed use of the means God's given us, the word, the sacraments. We're going to come to the table here in a moment that we would be coming longing to see him and that we would, we would be crying out that God would show us more of Christ, that we would understand more of his sufferings and more of his glory. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this portion of scripture. We thank you for the revelation of the Lord Jesus in all of the Bible. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would truly give us a greater sight of you. Our hearts are often dull. Our eyes are often dim. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would do for us what you did for those two on the Emmaus Road this morning. And we ask that you would help us to leave this place being able to say, did not our hearts burn within us as we heard you speak to us? And so, Lord, would you prepare us now as we come to the table? We pray these things in Jesus' name.